thanks so much. Appreciate you guys very much. I believe, and Daryl didn't mention it here, but um, I believe after the service, if you don't have a chance to greet Daryl, don't take that personally. Um, I know that he's trying to be a little more sensitive to uh, proximity right now relative to physical health. Um, so it's not personal if he doesn't come right up to you or not. And may want to ask him what's the most comfortable for him um, if you engage with him after the service. He'll be here, but he'll probably sneak out pretty soon after. Okay. All right. And he's not here to correct. I mean, he is, but he'll, he'll, he'll correct me later if I'm wrong. But anyhow. Well, guys, uh, for those who don't know, I'm Tim Rogers, lead pastor here at Grace Point. It's an honor to have you here. Thank you for being here this morning. And for those online, thank you for watching this morning. We are in a brand new series called What? Jesus really does. And I want to start this morning, I think, in an appropriate way, because I think in the room, you should know something happened that never happens around here, and that is the Phillies are in the National League Championship Series, right? Now, I have to admit, I am not a huge Phillies fan, and some of you are like, are you serious? We're going to talk about the Phillies in church? I thought this was the place where I wouldn't have to hear. I'm so tired of hearing about the Phillies. But listen, they never get this far, so come on, we've got to give some people some space to enjoy what they're, what they're enjoying, right? So I, was, I heard about the first baseman for the Phillies, Reese Hoskins. He hit a home run, I think, two of them last night, I believe. And um, he was reflecting on his long tenure with the Phillies and talking about when he first signed with the Phillies, there was a picture, like a panoramic, of the 2008 World Series championship team for the Phillies, and he was always wondering what that would be like to actually be there and to see the bank like that, to see Siddons Bank ballpark like that, and to feel the fans' uh, enthusiasm and excitement. He said, finally, we're living it right now. And when he said that, I'm like, this is so helpful for what I want to talk about this morning, because when you think about, think about that picture, and some of you have that, can picture that because you're baseball fans. Others are like, can we move past that quickly? Yeah. But picture this stadium full of red towel-waving people, fanatical in there, uh, you know, and excited about their team just winning the World Series. And it's just a picture, right? So it's a picture hanging on a wall. And it does a good thing. It brings back the memories of it. But all pictures, by just default, are reductionistic. Like, you, you can't really capture the full essence of what it means to be there by a picture. Some of you had the chance to go to the games over the weekend, and you may have taken a few pictures, and you come back and you show us who didn't get a chance to go, and we're like, that's cool. You're like, no, 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 it wasn't just cool. Like, it was awesome, and you're trying to tell us what it's like, but you're showing us a picture, and pictures was just by default, you know it, reductionistic. They're the best we have, but they reduce a 3D, a multi-sensory experience to one sense. Like, oh, I see that. That's great. But you didn't feel it, right? You didn't hear it. You didn't smell it. I mean, you weren't there. And so as I think about that image, that idea, I want to kind of start off with that and put that out there, that we all take pictures and have pictures of things. And whether you, I don't know if you know this or not, but early in the history of the church, there was a debate. Debate is a code word for conflict, right? There was a debate uh, in the early church um, about um, pictures. Right? I know the camera wasn't invented yet, but about icons or images. There was some people who thought we should use images of Christ in worship and of Mary in worship, and others thought we shouldn't do that because it reduces God to something that would be inappropriate to worship. Or to worship. It would bring him down to almost an idol form. Now, that discussion and debate ensued for a little while, and people began discussing, should we or should we not, if you will, use pictures or images of God in worship? Now, we may not have that actual conversation today, but here's what I'm convinced of, that we all have pictures or images in our mind of who God is, in particular, of who Jesus is. We can sometimes, no matter who we are, and here's where I want to start with this series, what Jesus really does. I believe this, that even well-meaning Christians can reduce Jesus to an image, 
to an icon, a vibe, or a brand, that no matter how well-meaning we are, what we try to do to get a hold of God, in particular to get a hold of who Jesus is, we kind of get a picture of him. We get a picture in our mind, we get a picture of who he is, and he's either an image, an icon, a vibe, a feel, or a brand, and we can reduce Jesus to a small portion size of who he really, really is. Whether this is reducing Jesus to who we want him to be, maybe Jesus is a social activist in our mind, and that's our primary expression of who Jesus is. Maybe Jesus is someone who wants you to come to church every Sunday morning and be faithful in your religious attendance. Maybe that's who Jesus is to you. Maybe Jesus is the uh, good luck charm over your dating relationship. And as long as we um, you know, uh, make a nod to the fact that we both follow Jesus, maybe Jesus will bless our relationship. Maybe I should use Jesus on my Instagram and have a good Bible verse and take some cool pictures of coffee and, and have Jesus bless my social media um, platform as well, right? Maybe, and here's what pastors sometimes do too, right? Pastors can get in the, the branding game. This was a surprise to me. Did you know this, that there's some pastors who, who are known for the kind of sneakers they wear to preach? Did you know that? I, I thought of that, I'm like, that's terrible. Like, that's terrible. In other words, there's a branding to this Jesus that even pastors can present, right? And so when we think about this image of Jesus and who he is, this is where I want to begin, that sometimes even well-meaning Christians can reduce Jesus to an image, an icon, a vibe, a feel, or a brand. And I don't know if I blame us for it, because we're trying to get a hold of God, and particularly trying to get a hold of Christ, but I think we have to understand that sometimes we do this. And I would say we are not alone. Many years ago, hundreds of years ago, Paul, an early follower of Christ, he wrote a letter to a brand new church in Colossae. And in this little town of Colossae, or bigger town of Colossae, he is writing to try to describe Jesus to them, to try to help them understand the fullness of who Jesus is. Because their faith was brand new, and they're trying to get a sense of what it looks like to get a picture, if you will, of who Jesus really was. And what I'd like to do in this series that we're going to be in, a nine-part series, I want to take you back historically to this space in Colossae where Paul writes to this church, and I want to give us some anchor points to ask the question, what does Jesus really do? And explain to you, this is what Jesus really does. Not just an image, an icon, a vibe, or a brand, but what is it that he actually does? What are the earliest followers of Christ talk about that he actually really, really does. And so if you have a Bible with you, I want to invite you to turn to the, what we call the New Testament or a little letter in there called Colossians. Colossians chapter 1 is where we're going to begin this morning. It's in the right two-thirds of your Bible, or if you, have, um, if you don't own a Bible, the Bible in the chair is our gift to you this morning, by the way. We'd love to have you take that with you. You can pull it up on your phone, on version, whatever it might be. But Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to walk through over the course of this series nine nine different things that I believe I see, at least in the book of Colossians, that Jesus actually really does to try to help us anchor our picture of Jesus to a solid idea of who he actually is from a testimony of some of the earliest followers of Christ. Now, if you can get in your mind, as I'm going to read the first eight verses of Colossians here in a second, I want you to, if you can, um, picture in your mind that you are a, um, an early church just coming to faith and just beginning to understand uh, what Jesus may have done, and you're receiving a letter 
from someone named Paul who is very well known, great teacher and leader and missionary of the time. You haven't met him yet, but he's writing to you and to your church. And here's how he begins his letter to you. Here's how it begins. I want you to to kind of get in that mindset. What would this feel like to hear this from Paul himself? And here's how it begins in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ, Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all of God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. Now let's pause it right there. I hope you felt some affection from Paul. He's writing to you saying, guys, I, I, I love you. I'm praying for you. I'm grateful for the love that we have for all of God's people. And he's relating to you. Like, remember Epaphras? You know him. I know him. I mean, he's a good friend. And I'm so glad he could share with you the message of the gospel. And where he's writing, just so you know, this is where you're sitting in Colossae. Colossae is in modern-day Turkey, okay? So you're in modern-day Turkey. Isn't that great? You're not on a, um, a coastal town. You're kind of in the middle of the mountainous region, uh, a well-to-do area, but also an area that had significant upheaval over the years, centuries of political and military upheaval. Sometimes you were a, a vassal state of Rome where you were controlled by an outside force. Sometimes you were not. You went back and forth. There was Always a struggle for power, always a struggle for information wars, if I can put it that way. Who is telling the truth? What is right? What should we really teach our children? Where can we um, direct them toward the future? Because there's a constant state of volatility over the years. And what had happened in Colossae is that some were teaching from a spiritual level that there's a way to enlightenment. Okay, There's a way to enlightenment. And the way to enlightenment is through angelic worship, Worshiping the spirit realm, if you worship the angelic realm, and if you tie that and pair that with this thing called asceticism. In other words, if you can control your passions, if you can control your passions and get that under wraps and, and marry that to this view of a kind of worship or a pursuit of special knowledge that will come to you, then I will tell you, you can find God. Right? You will find the spiritual fulfillment you are looking for. Now, today, our world is a little bit different, but not entirely. You know, to Daryl's comment earlier about finding truth, we're, when we question truth, we're essentially putting in its place an invitation to believe there's another set of special knowledge out here. Just find it. Open your eyes to see what really is true. Come on. Don't believe what everybody's telling you. Open your eyes. There's more. See the hidden truth that's out there. And the people in Colossae were in this mess of what is true and what is right, and they're hearing from someone another version of truth. And Paul is trying to, he's in prison, he is trying to, from prison, solidify this church and say, this isn't just another version of a truth, this is actually truth that should hold you. This is important to know, he was writing this in about 60 to 63 AD. 
Jesus died, we think, in around 33 AD, somewhere in that range. This is, this is only 30-ish years after Jesus died. The reason that's important is because all that Paul wrote could have been supported or questioned by eyewitnesses to Jesus' life himself. It's not as if Paul, to your point earlier, Daryl, it's not as if Paul is writing about a sandcastle, wishful thinking kind of faith. He's writing about something that actually happened, that Jesus who walked the planet, and what he wrote about could be questioned or validated by the very people who were hearing it right then. It only happened 30 years prior. And so Paul is writing to this place, and and hopefully this helps give some background to what he says next, verse 9. We're going to read verses 9 to 12 next. He says, for this reason... Since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge. He uses this word knowledge because he knows there's a struggle for knowledge and what is right knowledge. For the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. So that, and here's the result we're hoping for, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. Then he explains several ways that we can grow, and he's hoping that this church will sink their roots down. He's like, I hope this church, at the end of verse 10, will bear fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge, again, of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience. You need endurance if there's constant military and political volatility, by the way. And giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. Now, there's a lot there. I could do an entire series on this, but I'm not going to. I want you to see just in these verses what Paul is wanting for this church is to sink its roots deep into the character of Christ for their faith, to understand that the knowledge of God comes through the work of Christ. Now, I would ask the question, here's a big question I ask. Why? Why is this important? Why should there be a desire, look at verse 10 with me, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. Why does he want that for them? Why does he want that? What is his motivation? What, what is it that will really drive people to want to do that? Is it just because he says so and he's Paul? Is that something that can carry all the way out till today? Why is it that Paul writes the way that he does here? And what I think he is the answer for me, at least, is the next two verses, which I want to pause on and settle on for this morning. I think he gives the why in verses 13 and 14. He says this, he explains what Christ has done. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. These two verses are what I want to focus on. These two are the first answer to the question, what does Jesus really do? (laughs) Look at it here with me. He has rescued us, first of all, from the dominion of darkness. This idea of rescue, it has to do with rescuing from danger. It has to do with getting someone out of a hard and dangerous situation. Um, And I don't know if you've ever tried to help somebody who doesn't want to be rescued. Anyone ever? Don't raise your hand. Um, Anyone who ever has dealt with someone dealing with significant uh, ongoing struggles, you know, oh, you need help but they don't see it or want it yet. There's an assumption here, by the way, that people need rescued. Now, I don't know if you ever really apprehended that or felt that, the weight of what he's saying. What he's saying is we've all needed this. This is his starting point. The gospel starts with an understanding that I need rescued. I'm in a dangerous situation without the message of Christ. And the reason for that is because the dominion of darkness is right here on us. God, Christ has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. What does that mean? 
the dominion of darkness. Again, you don't need to raise your hand on that, but if you've ever worked with people um, who have really struggled um, with the weight of shame or guilt, or have really wrestled with some of the hard mental health battles that some of us face, uh, significant depression, anxieties, uh, the weight of just the hardship of getting through the day-to-day. You can sometimes feel a weight there. You can feel this. And what Paul is saying is not just that those things are the dominion of darkness. I use that simply as an illustration. Please hear me. I, I, maybe I shouldn't have said that because I want to distinguish very carefully. That that doesn't mean, dealing with those things doesn't mean that you're in the dominion of darkness. I simply mean that the feeling of not being able to personally get out of depression, for example, is a good example of what he's saying here. Like, you can't get out of the dominion of darkness. We can't get out from under the weight of what the evil one wants to put on us. Maybe even a better example is you think about Christ's death on the cross. If Christ's death happened on a Friday, crucifixion happened on a Friday, on Saturday, I want you to imagine for a minute what life would have been like if you're a follower of Jesus on Saturday. And stay there for a second. You know what happens next. Sunday happens next. The resurrection happens next. Don't go there yet. Saturday. Jesus is dead. If you haven't paused in your life to look at that and to feel the hopelessness of that, you may not have ever felt yet the weight of the dominion of darkness. It feels like on Saturday, evil wins. There is no hope. It's over. What Paul is writing about is that this dominion of darkness seeks to make Saturday a reality for all of us. It seeks to say, yeah, you're done. You're done. You will never recover from that. You're right. You're not going to be good enough for that. You will never get through that. You're right. It is hopeless, and it's coming. And what Paul frames up the start of Christianity as is that this dominion of darkness seeks to overcome all of us but Christ has rescued us, saved us from this space. He goes on. He says he brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. And then it's as if he's trying to make this such a point that he repeats himself. That's at least the way I I see it. Verse 14 mirrors the beginning of verse 13. And he describes it this way. It's in whom, in other words, in Christ, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Redemption, in a way, is another way to think about rescuing. Redemption is this idea that you are released or you are set free from bondage. You've been redeemed. You've been released. You've been set free. If you've ever, if you've ever wrestled with things that keep you in bondage, can you imagine what it's like to be free? To be free. <laughs> to be free from the addictions, to be free from the struggles, to be free from the anxiety, to be free from the sin, to be free from the pain, to be free from the ongoing nature, to be actually, actually free. For some of us, it may feel like a pipe dream. The problem is, when we reduce Jesus to something that we can manage, we don't actually ever get freedom. Let me put it this way. When we reduce Jesus to something we can manage, the problem is we have to manage it and we're not free. In other words, when I reduce Jesus to someone, let's say, who um, wants me to come to church every Sunday morning, to read my Bible every day, to forgive everybody that I should forgive, 
I've reduced Jesus to someone who's a good luck charm or someone who maybe blesses my relationship and that's who Jesus is to me. In other words, I then have to manage it. Then I have to show up to church every Sunday and I'm not free if I miss. I have to read my Bible every day and if I don't, I'm not free if I miss. In other words, I'm working my way to redemption. I see the dominion of darkness coming. I see the shame coming. If I don't do enough, I'm going to fall into shame and guilt again. I don't want that, so I'm going to redeem myself. <laughs> little by little, by working harder and being a good man and a good husband and a good father and a good wife and a good leader, I'm going to, little by little, keep myself from the dominion that seems to be coming in on me. I'm going to try to redeem myself. I'm going to manage my way into redemption. And when we reduce Jesus to that which we can manage, the problem is we have to manage it. And we are never free we never experience redemption because that's what Jesus really does, is redeems us. He redeems us. He redeems you. Paul explains redemption at the end of verse 14 is the forgiveness of sin. The forgiveness of sin. I love the way Millard Erickson, who's a Christian theologian, he writes that he talks about sin this way, and we don't always talk about sin. Sin is a couple things. Of course, it's uh, rebelliousness, it's uh, you know, things in my heart that are disobedient. Does anyone else feel when they're going down, um, they're on a road trip, when I see the speed limit, my first thought isn't, I can't wait to obey it. My first thought is, how much can I get away with? Uh, does anyone else, you don't have to raise your hand, if you can relate to that. What is that? What is that? And that's an explanation. This is like, I don't want some authority coming over top of me. There's just in that, this rebelliousness. Like, I don't, I'm not going to let them tell me, like, I think I can go nine over. Yeah, we can do that. Like, I, I, I don't, I don't want to obey. Not only is it a rebelliousness, but listen, it's also, I love the way Erickson puts it, it's a displacement of God in our hearts. Years ago, some of you know this story, our middle daughter, Liana, was born um, uh, with... Uh, what's called in the medical world a bronchial pulmonary sequestration. Isn't that great? A little tessellator on spelling. What that means is there was a lobe, an extra lobe in her lung. Uh, we have three on the right and two on the left, I think, um, or it's the other way around. Anyway, there were three on both sides of her lungs, and that's not good. Uh, the problem with that is if that extra lobe gets a blood supply, it will grow and it will displace the heart. And there's a 99% fatality rate in children when that happens. And so that was not good news for us as parents to hear that. And so we went through uh, weekly ultrasounds and check-ins, a lot of anxiety around what will happen. Um, went to CHOP and visited with a bunch of surgeons and all that just to try to prepare for what might happen if that lobe gets blood supplied. Because what happens is that grows, and then the heart isn't in the right, right place, and you can't live, right, with the heart in the wrong place. And here's the way Erickson talks about sin. Like, it, it's a displacement of God in our heart. When something gets blood supply that pushes out the supremacy of God in my heart, sin kills me. It kills life. It takes me back to the dominion of darkness. When God is displaced by the things that I seek redemption from, I get out of whack. It's not that the things are bad, like I'm glad she has lobes in her lung because that way, you know, she can breathe and live, right? But it's when they're out of place that we start to have the problem. And so I want to ask this question as we kind of come toward the landing zone here in this first message, and that is this, where can I find redemption? When you think about your own life, like where can you actually find redemption? Defined as that which will set you free. That which will set your soul free. 
that which will set you free from the dominion of darkness. Where can you find redemption? This is why Paul pushes on this early church right away. Where can you find, church, redemption? And he'll make the case that through Christ alone can I find it. Now, you may know that in your head, but I want to encourage you to let it sink for a minute into your heart. Because sometimes, I don't know about you, but for me, I find freedom in, all of, in, in a number of secondary things, none of which I think you should stop doing. I just hope they don't displace the heart. In my hobbies, things I enjoy getting out to do or stopping to do, in my work, in the quality of work that I do, even in my friendships, in my desire for a good reputation, in my desire to be obedient and faithful. There's a number of things that I prefer doing, and I think you do too, none of which I want to encourage you to set to the side. I just don't want blood supply pushing them out, pushing your heart out of place. That the supremacy of God can sit there and you won't die from trying to manage your way into redemption. You will not be able to find freedom in any other way except through Christ, is what Paul is saying to this early church. And so when I think about this thing, I ask the question, what does Jesus really do? Jesus redeems. He redeems. He's not just an image, an icon, a vibe, or a brand. He actually redeems. And so for all that you do and all that I do as we begin this series, I want to, to nail this section down for you that there is nothing else that I believe you can do that will ever give you the freedom, that will ever free you like coming under and believing and settling into Christ's work for you. And this is why I think Paul wrote it this way to the early church. No obedience, no Sunday morning attendance, no Bible reading, no good religious activity. The church will not save you. Your work will not save you. Mine will not save you. When Paul is writing to this church, he's saying, church, please don't ever forget. What does Jesus really do? First of all, he redeems. He redeems. He sets us free. He forgives our sin. And I don't know if Paul would say this if he were here. I like to think he would. I might be wrong. If you can find something else that will redeem you, go for it. That will break the power of sin, that will keep you from the dominion of darkness, that you can anchor your soul to, go for it. But I think deep inside each one of us, we know that even the things that we love and that we think give us life are not enough on their own to really free us even from ourselves. And so this is the beginning of this series. What does Jesus really do? What does he do? He redeems. He redeems. He breaks the power of sin and death. He brings to you and brings to me and brings to this early church a hope, a strength, and he brings freedom. Freedom. And if you haven't ever encountered that level of freedom, that's what Jesus really does. And that's the kind of conversation I'd love to have with you, even this morning. All right. Guys, let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for this letter to the early church and the message that it has for us here today, I pray that you would help us in our pursuit of all the things that we seek to find satisfaction, peace, and happiness, contentment. A lot of these things are great. They're just secondary. They shouldn't be gone. 
from our schedules or our values, but sometimes they can displace you when they get blood supply and we think somehow that how people think of us or whether we make the team or get enough playing time or get the lead role or get the job or start the company and are successful, somehow we think sometimes those things will save us from the dominion of darkness, from our own sense of shame and guilt, our awareness of our own failure. I pray that you would help us, Father, not to try to manage this, to be done with our striving, to find freedom. We can settle into what you have done for us through your son, Jesus Christ. And so I pray that you would warm our hearts again to the hope of Christ and what he has really done. He really has the power and authority to redeem us alone. Warm us, if you will, to that message and to that hope that nothing can displace that in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray.